Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Sure. So, um, for those of you whom I don't know well, my name is Justin Hecht, and I am not a scholar of Buddhism nor ordained in any uh, lineage of Buddhism. I've been studying and practicing for many years now. Uh, I'm also a psychologist, and I bring those two uh, disciplines to what I'm going to talk to you about today. Um, the broad subject of my talk is happiness, um, but I want to just set it in the idea that, that I had a very powerful experience traveling in Burma and Bhutan, and um, felt that a lot of what happened to me there really changed me internally, and I wanted to share it with you and offer it to all of us uh, with the world where it is right now. So the um, I guess I'd like to start by saying that I've, I've always loved travel and have as an ambition to try to travel almost every place in the world before I die. And I've got another 40 years or so left, so I've kind of got a list. And one of the ways that I make my list is I try to prioritize going to places that are um, about to change. Um, so when I started traveling in Asia, I went to um, Sulawesi and some other remote islands in Indonesia before they'd been changed. And um, Bhutan is a remote Himalayan kingdom that had no access to television or the internet until a little less than two years ago. So I, I wish I'd been there three years ago, but I wanted to see it before TV and the internet had really changed. And then Burma, which is also known as Myanmar, is a um, much different story. Um, um, I've always wanted, I've wanted to go there for a long time because it's close to Thailand and India, which are two countries that I love. And um, have not gone there because the political situation has been so bad for a long time. The uh, Many of you may know the film Beyond Rangoon. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it heartily. It's a, a true story by the filmmaker John Borman, who's a socially engaged filmmaker. And it's a beautiful film that tells the story of uh, what happened in 1988 and 89 when... Uh, uh, a woman named Aung San Suu Kyi was elected by a huge majority to govern Burma, and her election was put down by the military government. So she, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, had been, um, has been held under house arrest until earlier this year, and when she was released, I had planned my trip to Bhutan for over a year and a half, and when she was released, I said, well, this is a little window, and let me see if I can go there. So I did, and I'd, I'd like to share with you my experiences of Burma first. First of all, um, many of you may know that the uh, nation of Burma is also known as Myanmar, and 
the reason I'm referring it to, to it as Burma is, is at uh, uh, Suu Kyi's request. She's the legally elected uh, 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 leader and someone whom the United States actually recognizes. And the military dictatorship has changed the name of the country to Myanmar. And that's something she urges us not to recognize. So until uh, there is a legally elected government there, I'm going to follow her suggestion and call it Burma. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about Burma for those of you who may not know much about it. Uh, Burma is a nation of uh, 50 plus million people to the west of Thailand and east of India. Um, it's slightly larger than Thailand. And um, one of the things that I was uh, really surprised to learn was the uh, uh, sophistication and uh, length of civilization of Burma. Before uh, the last Burmese dynasty was destroyed by the British Empire in 1880. It had been in place for over a thousand years and had conquered uh, the neighboring countries of Thailand and southern China so that it was a, um, a, a, a nation of enormous sophistication and wealth and beauty and refinement. I went to several museums there and was overwhelmed by the examples of the culture and of course, uh, the Buddhism there, which is very similar to the Theravadan Buddhism of Thailand, uh, its neighbor, is very similar in many ways. I was only there for four or five days, five days, four nights, um, because you have to plan everything very far in advance. You have to give an exact itinerary and present uh, reasons for why you're going, where you're going to the government. So there's a very thin tourist infrastructure that... Um, uh, supports a very small number of tourists who go to um, see Rangoon, Mandalay, uh, a place called Bagan, and a place called Bago, which are ancient sites of, of holy uh, uh, Buddhist relics and pagodas. Um, I traveled alone uh, because my partner doesn't isn't as interested in travel like this. It's, it's very demanding travel. It, there's an 11-hour time difference, so it's almost day for night. It's a long flight. You have to fly first to Hong Kong or Tokyo, then to Bangkok, and then on to Rangoon, and the connections are terrible. So it takes a long time, and when you get there, you're really tired. Um, I was there in August. It was 90 to 100 degrees and very humid every day. So it was not a comfortable or an easy trip, although compared with the way people lived, I was uh, in enormous luxury. And the first thing that I, I wanted to share with all of you, which is an impression that I, I meditate on and try to uh, retain and stay with, is the enormous gratitude that I have and that I think we all should have for the uh, material abundance that we all live in. It is, um, it's really quite remarkable. Burma and Bhutan are both among the world's poorest countries. And Burma in particular, um, fewer than half of the people in Burma ha have shoes to wear. And um, most of the people who do have shoes wear the kind of um, 99 cent flip-flops you'd buy at, at Kmart or, or uh, Walgreens to wear to the beach. Um, and that's, that's just kind of the, the, the shoe that they wear. So um, as a result of that, there's a very conscious um, uh, uh, effort among the society not to litter uh, the, the floor with, um, with glass because someone you know could hurt their feet. But just saying that, it's hard to really get an impression for what it's like to, um, to see people who have no shoes. And it, um, 
I, I meditated at least twice every day while I was there. And when I would open my eyes and look around and see the poverty in which people lived, it was hard not to become very, very sad. And um, to think about the jarring contrast where, where many of us are, um, you know, worried about our car not being good enough or needing newer sheets or being tired with our clothing or something like that. I'm sure all of us have far more than one pair of shoes and they're all much better. So the, the um, you know, I, I struggled with this idea of, of guilt and, and what do we do with, with guilt? Because by an accident of birth, we all live in this fantastically wealthy, by world and historical standards, this nation that's fantastically wealthy. Um, and I thought that, that really the answer to that is gratitude. And I think it's, it's part of a um, Buddhist uh, 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 practice of cultivating um, compassion, but also cultivating gratitude to be more in a heavenly abode uh, of an emotion of gratitude. And that, that has helped me since I've returned to feel more centered and to feel more grateful for everything that I have. So that was one of the biggest themes of my three weeks in those two nations, um, was, was being aware of gratitude. The second was to think about um, the colossal ignorance with which most of us in this nation live. Um, I uh, do my best to keep abreast of the news. Like many of you, I'm pretty busy. Um, but I think it really requires a heroic effort to get to know the names of the nations where other people live, how many people are there, the capitals, who the governments are. All of these things are, 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 are never covered in most of the media. You have to comb through our best newspapers, the New York Times or the Washington Post, and every now and then you might see a tiny article on these nations where millions and millions of people live. Um, and so it's, it's astonishing. And then to actually voyage there is a way to realize our interconnectedness with these people. And if you meditate, you think long and hard about, well, why am I born of European-American parents in the U.S.? Why wasn't I born in, in Burma? What, what gave rise to this? And there's a real feeling of openness and expansion that happens as you look around and see that there are millions and millions of people who all want the same things that we do, who want happiness and some kind of comfort in their lives. And so I, I think that's one reason to really travel. And I think to travel as Buddhists, you, you, your sense of yourself can really expand to see um, men and women, boys and girls, living in material circumstances that are vastly different than ours and who seem to be reasonably well-adjusted. They seem to be reasonably happy. So that was another thing that really came to me was, was a sense of... Um, uh, not just of gratitude, but of how we are all interconnected and of trying to travel so that we may, um, as citizens and participants in our own democracy, try to have a sense of how the actions of, of our foreign policy and of our government impact um, the wider world frame. And I think that given what's happening now in world politics, it's especially important Another point that I came away with was, again, my, my own ignorance, but our own ignorance about the history of much of the world and the history of European colonialism. Um, I was taught almost nothing about the history of European colonialism in high school, 
and I learned a bit more in university and had picked up a little bit here and there. But it's um, hard to describe or imagine or appreciate the um, intense, powerful, and visceral hatred that the Burmese feel for the British. And um, this was something I was largely unaware of. Um, uh, 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 the historical roots are essentially that, um, I don't know about the rest of you, but my feeling or conception about much of the British Empire was that it was a more or less benign, commercially motivated political force that uh, descended on a world of uh, almost no civilization and brought trade. And yeah, it was a little exploitative, but what was there before was worse. And um, so it was kind of like that, just sort of a, well, they did this. And I hadn't really studied it, but it was a very poorly formed opinion that I must say was quite ignorant. And maybe some of that was true in some in the case of some nations, of course, it's a huge subject, but, but in India and Burma in particular, it was not true. The Burmese had a fully functioning government of their own um, throughout the 19th century, and the British fought three brutal wars of conquest in 1820, 1850, and 1880 that essentially were over the right of the British Empire to take whatever they liked from Burma without compensation. I was so appalled to learn of the history of the massacres and the slaughters and the political brutality of the British that I've done my best to confirm it from independent sources, not just taking the word of the of the Burmese. And it seems to be quite true. There's a man named Amitabh Ghosh, who is a Bengali, who writes historical novels and travel works about, about this. And he wrote a book called The Glass Palace, which talks about um, the exile of uh, uh, King Tibaw and Queen Superyarlat, who were the last monarchs of Burma, who were given 10 minutes to leave their palace of Mandalay uh, before most of their government was, was murdered by firing squad by the British in 1880. So the British Raj, which lasted from 1880 to 1940, was widely detested by the Burmese and set in, in place a series of governments that were increasingly corrupt. Now, what does all this have to do with Buddhism? Well, I think that if we deny our connection with world events and remain cut off from the history of what European and U.S. foreign policy did to other parts of the world, we are ignorant of what might be a right action as we face the possibility of war. I'm deeply troubled and conflicted about what to do. Um, in this in this case, um, I'm aware that that you know the questions of of war or not that we're facing are very very difficult and hard to know what to do. At the same time, when I think about how easy it is to fuzz out and to become ignorant, I come back to the one of the ideals of Buddhism, which is right thought. Well, I think right thought cannot come except from knowledge, and to me. Knowing the story of Burma makes it very important that we, as a nation, as a superpower, as a kind of an empire, not be in the kind of place that that uh, the British Empire was a hundred years ago. So that was a um, that was a very very powerful thought that struck me while I was in Burma. Something I tried to think about and become less ignorant about. Um, so those are some of the darker aspects of Burma. 
I want to talk um, briefly about some of the lighter aspects. It is one of the most beautiful nations I've ever seen. Um, for those of you who have been to Thailand, it is, it's similar to Thailand and somewhere between Thailand and India. One of the biggest differences is that it, it, it's almost untouched by modern development. So you'll see mile after mile of, of gorgeous, pristine beaches with um, golden pagodas um, as the tallest building. So there are no skyscrapers, um, many simple native, uh, native Burmese architecture buildings. Um, um, and very little concrete blockhouses except in the capital. Um, the, the pagodas themselves are spectacular structures where people uh, worship um, almost daily. Um, and there's a, there's a very simple faith that seems to sustain the Burmese, many of whom speak English. They're very polite, and I got to know quite a number of them, and tried to get a sense of... Um, what is Buddhism to them? How do they practice it? And um, again, here's where I come to a kind of gratitude for living in the United States in general and in San Francisco in particular when we do. Uh, the Theravada Buddhism as practiced in Burma is, uh, is, is a very different faith from what we might imagine by reading the books of someone like Thich Nhat Hanh. People in general, as near as I could make out, seem to have a, a kind of a mechanical system of, of merits and, and demerits where, where you know, bringing food to a monk is good and feeding ten monks is ten times as good. And there's a, there's a kind of a, a mechanical or, or almost a mathematical way that many of the people I encountered seem to think about um, their faith. And... Um, this was somewhat disappointing to me, I must confess, because I had somewhat idealized the way people practiced their Buddhism. Um, it's different than Thailand, and I think it's largely a result of, of ignorance. It's been the policy of the military government to destroy uh, uh, higher education and to limit it so that people are given very simple educations. The government correctly fears knowledgeable people, and I think this is reflected in the, the attitudes of many people towards their uh, religion, not all. Um, I did meet some monks who were thoughtful and better educated, but by and large, people practiced Buddhism in, in um, Burma in a way that that felt to me very much similar to the way Christians might have uh, practiced Christianity in medieval Europe. There was a um, proliferation of of uh, 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 small deities called knots which were animistic and totemistic um, uh, guardians of the household, guardians of individual water buffalo, uh, guardians of the village, guardians of business, and people would have uh, festivals to commemorate the knots within the Buddhist temples. So there was this very interesting fusion of local um, um, deities that were worshipped and given offerings along with uh, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in a bewildering array that was really hard to get a a sense of. Um, at the same time, a lot of the Bodhidharma that we believe in and talk about here in the West was uh, was believed in and was practiced and was discussed. The, the monks and abbots around the country were very open to uh, Westerners participating. And in every city I went with 
the monasteries with my guide and would just kind of invite myself to sit in with the monks for morning and evening meditations, which were very beautiful and very calm. They meditated for 30 to 45 minutes. And sometimes we would talk uh, a little bit about issues related to Buddhism. Um, I had, uh, by law, I needed to have a guide with me the whole time. So there was always a sense that political matters were never discussed. But um, people would talk about the ideas of, um, of simplicity uh, or, or a kind of um, you know, living simply and wondering if we in America were given into luxury and indulgence. And um, that was something I wondered too, how, how to answer people who come from this country where um, they barely have enough to eat and then thinking about our own lives. So um, those were some of my reflections from Burma where I was not nearly as long. Um, but it was a very uh, powerful trip and I remain um, you know, quite uh, 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 connected to and interested in Burma and would encourage any of you who have an interest to try to visit at some point, if only for a few days from Thailand or India. The greater part of my trip... Oh, I, I want to say one other thing, which is that I saw very few Westerners and no Americans in my entire trip, but none in Bhutan, in uh, Burma. I was, I was thinking, I was certain I would see someone, but um, I didn't. I didn't see any Americans and, and uh, almost no Westerners. I saw a couple of people from Singapore, one woman from Argentina. So it was very uh, quiet um, as far as tourism goes. And just parenthetically, um, I had stopped for a day in Bangkok waiting for my connection and was immediately aware of um, uh, lots of gay men, lots of gay Thai men who would, would put out energy and were, were very, um, very sexual just, just in this one part of Bangkok where I visited a friend. Um, so there was this powerful, palpable, sensual energy. And in Burma, where I saw many um, uh, uh, beautiful, attractive men, I didn't get a single vibe of uh, that anything was ever going on. And I have no idea what that means, um, except that I know that during the British Raj, homosexuality was punished violently in, in Burma, um, whereas that wasn't the case in Thailand. So again, I don't, I don't know what that means, but I thought it was interesting. Um, after five days and four nights in Burma, I flew to Bhutan. And again, this, this is a place where many of you may not know where it is. Bhutan is a nation about the size of Switzerland, and it's due north of Bangladesh. So it's, it's north of the eastern part of India. It's to the um, uh, 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 west of northern Burma and to the east of Nepal in the Himalayas, basically wedged up between Darjeeling and Assam, which are the easternmost states of India, and um, the eastern part of Tibet in southwestern China. So uh, it's about the size of Switzerland. Um, and again, I thought about our cultural-centric way of looking at the world, because most people can find Switzerland, which is a small nation, but few can find Bhutan. And part of that has to do with the way in, we saw the world in, in the maps we grew up with as school children, where the northern hemisphere was much bigger than it actually is. So Switzerland looked like this, and Bhutan was kind of like that. But I think it also has to do with, with our Eurocentrism and failure to be really interested in Asia, um, part of my, my thought. So um, 
Bhutan has about 500,000 people. So even though it's the size of Switzerland, it has a tenth the population. And it is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. It looks a lot like Switzerland. The average elevation is around 9,000 feet. So it's high up in the mountains, and there are half-timbered houses of, um, of, of a lot of beauty. The, unlike in, in Burma, the government is a very enlightened monarch, a man named Jigme Wangchuk, who um, is in his early 40s and was educated uh, in his own country but spent two years in England and wanted to, to see how can uh, Bhutan develop with a um, uh, 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 respect for traditional culture but in a way that gets the best of modern uh, uh, culture and the world. And he hit on two strategies which I think were brilliant. One is hydroelectric power which is sold to India and the other is what they call high value added tourism. High value added is a uh, euphemism for expensive and it means that in order to go there you have to plan a long time in advance and you have to spend uh, a minimum of $200 a day, um, $80 of which goes as a tourist tax to the government. And for that, everything is paid for. Your, your lodging, which is simple but clean, your food, which is simple but clean, and uh, transport, as well as a guide. Um, I went alone because I wanted to go on my own itinerary, and I'd written months and months in advance to the Department of Religious Affairs for permission to talk with and interact with abbots and monks and to see the monasteries and the holy rooms um, and the sanctuaries of Buddhist monasteries. And um, it was a, a wonderful trip in many ways. Um, the When you arrive on the national airline, which consists of one plane, um, <laughs> you, you fly into an airfield that's at 8,000 feet and um, uh, you descend through a valley of, of uh, incomparable beauty um, and see these wonderful pine trees. The, uh, the native uh, forest there is being harvested in a sustainable way at a rate of less than 2% per year, so everything can readily grow back. And you see posters all over the country saying, um, take one, plant two. So their, their native, uh, uh, is it biosphere or biome, is, is largely intact. And the nation is filled with gorgeous rhododendrons, with butterflies, with, uh, with cranes and birds, uh, yellow monkeys, uh, langurs, which is, one, which is a, a native uh, uh, large uh, great ape, a relative of the gibbon. They have takins, which are their bizarre, sort of like a push-me-pull-you, kind of like a, a, a llama or a cow, that, that uh, kind of a, a goat or a cow, that uh, funny little animal. So there's, there's a lot to see that's very beautiful. Um, and the people themselves are very, very gracious and kind and hospitable. By law, they must wear in uh, uh, their national dress um, whenever they are in public. So they're all wearing what's called a go, that's like a big apron. Uh, in, uh, in the warmer months when I was there, it's uh, in cotton with white sleeves. And then they wear um, knee socks and shoes. And um, on the whole, they're... Um, uh, uh, the people are smaller because they have less protein and so they there's a temptation to think of them as cute they feel like you're in some kind of a Disneyland and um, any time you spend with them you realize that that's really not a, a good attitude but to try to learn from them and um, uh, I had a few uh, 
experiences that, that I'd like to share that I think helped me to learn from them. One is a, a kind of an interesting way that they try to uh, blend the a respect for tradition with modernity. So part of their uh, uh, development program is hydroelectric power. And so they've, they've put up some dams that are lower impact that generate water through turbines. And each of the turbines that spin at thousands of revolutions per minute are connected to a Buddhist prayer wheel. So as the water flows through, it spins a prayer wheel, which sends prayers to nirvana for the repose of souls. And I thought that was a very clever way that they are um, trying to integrate their customs. There also are many other prayer wheels, and you'll walk around and see what looks like a mill, and you say, well, is that for for grain or irrigation? They say, no, it's a prayer wheel. So that, that there are these large prayer wheels, and people will circumambulate the prayer wheels. Each time a prayer wheel turns, or each time they come around, the, it rings a bell. Um, like in Burma, the faith in Bhutan was very simple, and was combined with their uh, native religion with a lot of animistic gods, um, a lot of uh, 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 local household protectors. Every house had a uh, an altar um, where there would be pictures of um, Guru Rinpoche, uh, also known as Padmasambhava, who brought Buddhism to Tibet and to Bhutan and Nepal, um, their king, and the Dalai Lama. So there would be this, this uh, array of of uh, photographs on the household altar. And people would worship very seriously there every day. Um, it, it was, as hard as I tried, I think it would have taken several years to really penetrate and understand uh, the Buddhism of Bhutan. There were many different um, sects there, the Galupkpas, the Nyingmapas, all of the Tibetan sects were well represented. And when I would go to the monasteries, I would meet um, monks who would talk with me about uh, different religious issues, but also talk with me about America and what it was like, and um, also want to, uh, uh, they heard I was a doctor and didn't really understand the difference between psychologist and psychiatrist, and so they would ask me for medical cures, and I would demur as much as I could, but many of them were an athlete, athlete's foot, so I, I gave away my uh, a lot of my antifungal medicines, and that seemed to help people. So it was, it was interesting that, that I was there at one level trying to learn about their Buddhism, and they would be trying to get these simple material cures. So even though it was a very, um, a country that was much richer and much happier than Burma, because they loved their king, and I think he really is doing a good thing for them, again, the material poverty, um, held them very much in, in uh, uh, was something that they very much wanted to, to address or change. Um, two stories I'd like to share, uh, and then, then I, I'd like to take some questions. But uh, because I was traveling on my own and meditating a lot daily, I was really looking for the travel to change me somehow. I was hoping that by being mindful and being aware of Buddhism and being... Um, conscious of and trying to connect with the people who were there, that something inside me would change. And um, I wish I could say that I had been hit by a bolt of spiritual illumination and felt much more certain in my life path or, or had a strong direction, but unfortunately nothing like that happened. It was more subtle. 
But there are a couple of things that I will remember and never forget. One was that when you travel alone, if you're really in touch with the processes of your own mind and your own experience, and slow down and pay attention, which I think are our core teachings of every school of Buddhism, you will get things that I think will sustain you. So I like to think of my three weeks as, 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 a, um, as a bit of an extended walking or traveling meditation. And after I had been in Bhutan for a few days, there are very few electric lights. And I had had dinner um, in the guest house and was walking back up a path past these beautiful rhododendron bushes, hearing the dogs bark and the monkeys and the cicadas and all this, this noise, but noticing that there was very little light. And I looked up and saw that the sky was flooded with stars in a way that I very rarely see. And you know how you kind of have that conversation with yourself. And, and I heard a voice inside me or me talking to myself say, um, well, you know, the light of civilization drowns out the light from the subtler stars. Okay, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. And then I took a few more steps and I said, wait a second, this is something really important. The light of civilization drowns out the more subtle light of the stars. And I'd had this feeling within myself before I'd gone to Bhutan that I, I'm, I'm kind of looking for exactly what it is I'm supposed to be doing in my life. I, I feel like in general I'm doing some good, but I, I don't feel this complete centeredness that I'd like to. I don't always feel completely in touch with myself. And I know I'm not alone with this. And there was a way that slowing down in Bhutan and being in a place where we're not overwhelmed with light um, really allowed me to, to see more of the natural world and to reflect on what that meant for me. So that alone was worth the entire experience. And then I think that there may be a way that the Bhutanese are more in touch with a more subtle energy. Um, there were no neon signs, no fluorescent lights behind signs anywhere in the country. And to be away from that energy, both literally, you know, the, the energy of light grabbing our attention, uh, and figuratively, was very powerful and very healing and very beautiful. Um, when I came back to, uh, 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 through Hong Kong or, or San Francisco and looked at the sky, all I could see was this, this haze or fog that, that cut out all but the brightest stars. So I think that there's a way that we've lost touch with the subtler energies or the subtler light that may come within us, and that's, that's a reason to meditate and also to travel. Um, the second story that I want to share with you is that after I'd been in the country for about six days, I was in the center of the country, in the capital, which is called Timpu, which is the biggest city in Bhutan. Uh, no traffic lights anywhere in the country, one single landing strip. The, uh, uh, they have traffic police um, in, in Timpu. And um, I had not spoken uh, with anyone but my guide, uh, either in Burma or Bhutan, in many days. Um, and I heard uh, European voices speaking in English. And I came on a table of expatriates who were all volunteers for the United Nations. And um, in a place like that, you know, they all knew each other. And um, uh, and I said, you know, may I join you? 
And they said, sure, please do. And they started talking to me and asking, and, you know, where are you from? And, oh, we don't see many Americans here. And, um, you know, then, then I suddenly became the representative for the United States and had to answer for our foreign policy, <laughs> <laughs> which was exhausting. Um, but shortly after that, people asked me about my profession in the U.S., and I told them I was a psychologist. And um, there were... Uh, uh, about 10 people there. There were there was a man from Britain, two uh, uh, people from France, a man and a woman, a man from Denmark, an Australian, a New Zealander, a Japanese, a Singaporean, a Filipino, and a man from Taiwan. So it was it was truly the United Nations, and each of these people had come to Bhutan with the the avowed intention of doing good, of helping this country to develop in some way, and. Um, we got on the subject, the, the Danish man, uh, who was a very articulate, um, rather attractive man, whom I remember, um, named Anders, um, spoke, and um, I, I had a resonance with him. Many of you know my, my lover is Danish, and so I, I feel like I have the, kind of a, a certain cultural understanding. Right. <laughs> uh, with, you know, 10 years on, I, I have a sense of Denmark, and at least a limited sense. And Anders spoke about the Bhutanese policy. And the Bhutanese very carefully review every proposal from Europe about, or from, from Western aid donors, about how to develop the country. And they say, the king has said, my objective is not to increase the gross national product, it is to increase the gross national happiness. And, you know, there's a lovely way that this country does this. And Anders was saying, what do we have to contribute? We wealthy Westerners from the industrialized lands, are we really happier? He said, I've been here six months, and I think we need to import some of the Bhutanese to Copenhagen and New York so they can teach us how to increase our gross national happiness. And we started talking about that. And um, um, we spoke about... Um, um, we spoke about why people were happier. And they asked me as a psychologist, did I have a sense of what made for happiness? And I was delighted to discover that yes, I did. That it had to do with um, connection in a loving uh, community, in a loving way with others, um, a, a determination to develop oneself and develop a meaningful belief system, uh, living a life that is considered meaningful, <coughs> avoiding excesses, um, you know, uh, uh, being in meaningful connection with other people. And I began listing all of these things and realized that a lot of them were from social psychology, but that many more of them were from Buddhism. You know, had to do with the Noble Eightfold Path and had to do with the Four Noble Truths. And um, so there was a way that that was kind of a revelation for me to speak so much from the heart. And I realized at the end of 15 or 20 minutes of people asking me about happiness, that I had kind of become this expert and they were all looking at me and I felt very embarrassed and somewhat self-conscious. And then I said, well, what about all of you? You know, you are all here out of a noble idealism to try to help this country, aren't you? And doesn't that give you some kind of happiness? And they all looked as though I had, I don't know what, farted or something. I mean, there was just this very, very awkward uh, 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 silence. 
and people were were very reluctant to embrace their own idealism and and I spoke about that and I, I thought you know what do I do with this do I do I push harder or do I let this just sit here or do we change the subject or do I order another beer and and I said um, and then I thought about it and I kind of waited a moment and I said I, I run psychotherapy groups, and, and, and so I, I wanted to like make a psychotherapy intervention. I said, well, I'm not a therapist here. I'm a traveler, and I'm a voyager. But then I thought, well, I'm a Buddhist, and I'm engaged, and here are these people from the United Nations, and do I maybe have something to offer? And I kind of said a little prayer and meditated for a moment, and people were kind of talking. And, I, and then I said, you know what? I'm going to see if I can find a way to say this that's completely non-judgmental but might be helpful. And I said, you know, I said, I, there's something that really strikes me about this. And I said, I just came from Burma where there were a lot of idealists who lied and exploited the country. And I think that we Westerners have this real burden of shame around being idealistic. And so when I said that I thought that a lot of you were idealistic and told you I admired you for what you were doing, I really was sincere. And I do admire you, and I think maybe you can find some more happiness if you all would be in touch with the positive things that motivated you to come to Bhutan and be volunteers for six months. And I said, because it really feels to me like what's underlying it is a lot of love and a lot of care for your fellow human beings. And I think those are very noble motivations at the risk of sounding corny or idealistic. And Andres and one of the French people said to me, well, you do sound corny and idealistic, but maybe that's one of the reasons we're not so happy in Europe, and thank you for saying that to me. So I felt like, like that didn't really come from me, like that was part of, of the Buddhism that we all practice, is an idea or an attempt to live with some idealism and not to be cynicism cynical, but to hold a right view. Um, I want to leave you with one last impression before I take questions, and that is that I was privileged to be in, in really the Holy of Holies, one of the most sacred uh, 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 monasteries inside uh, a monastery, of a, a prayer room inside Bhutan, uh, Bhutan's most holy shrine that was dedicated to the uh, uh, Padmasambhava who had brought Buddhism to Bhutan. And I was there with a hundred monks of all ages. And unlike in Burma, the monks in Bhutan are monks for life. And they, they come at eight or nine and they don't leave the order until they die. So it was boys of eight, you know, handsome young men of 20, 15, 30, and, and you know, middle-aged men and, and old wise men in their 70s and 80s. A hundred, maybe 120 of them praying and chanting together the Heart Sutra in Bhutanese, which is very much like Tibetan surrounded by thousands and thousands of butter lamps with incense burning everywhere, the old-fashioned Tibetan drums and horns going off at, at odd intervals with um, incense and pictures of, uh, of, of Buddhist saints everywhere I went. And um, I was there for, they, they had a, a, a death ceremony that went on for three days honoring the passing of one of their uh, uh, senior abbots, and I was allowed to be there, was washed with holy water. They showed me how to prostrate, and I had the feeling that I was participating in a ritual of such sacredness that had gone back to the beginning of time. I was completely transported and so honored that 
at several moments I just felt tears streaming down my cheeks to have been included in this um, sacred and beautiful ceremony that that was uh, for any of you who've seen the film um, uh, uh, that was recently out about the Dalai Lama Kundun uh, it was it was like being there um, and I just I just felt my heart swell with with the love and devotion of these monks who had really given their lives for all of our enlightenment. So um, those are a few of my impressions. I, I uh, hope that that's helpful in some way, and I welcome any questions you might have. Thank you, Paul. Do you want me to take a few questions, or what? Yeah, I don't know if you know what people's questions. This is just as easier to hear. Oh, okay. Well, why, why don't we just go for like five minutes and I'll answer the first three or four questions that people have. Yeah, Jim. When, like the time, when, when uh, the monks are meditating, I, and I also wanted to ask you about your use of the word worship, if um, that was just our custom, but, or if it, that was specific mm-hmm. or intentional. Um, what is their sense of why they meditate? What are they meditating? I'm just doing for their own equanimity, for the equanimity of the world, I mean, do they have an agenda? Is it purposeless? No, it, it has a purpose, and it is a form of worship in many ways. There is a veneration of the spirit of the different Buddhas. So there's that. Um, there's a lot of chanting, which is for the release from uh, uh, hell realms of souls that have departed and for the peaceful abiding of souls. There are active prayers that are sent out for peace in the world and end of suffering of sentient beings. So there, there are, there, the meditation really are very active, and there are kinds of prayers. And there's very little um, simple mindfulness in Bhutan. It's not like a Japanese Zen practice or like a Thai mindfulness practice. They are chanting. They are sitting before butter lamps that are placed in front of uh, 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 mostly beautiful statues of, of uh, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So it, it's a very... Um, it doesn't have any of the, what I would call from my cultural perspective, um, you know, sort of psychological mindedness of, of Japanese Zen, for instance. Yeah, good question. Yes? What's the relationship between the Thais and the Burmese? Uh, very mixed. The um, uh, Burma is a multi-ethnic society. And um, there are a number of states that are in, in more or less open rebellion with the central government in, in Burma, and they hide out in Thailand um, and make cross-border raids. Um, but Thailand is itself somewhat corrupt, so the official Thai policy is not to allow foreign soldiers to operate from their soil, but the, the, um, a lot of these foreign rebellions want not just freedom from their people, but the right to grow opium. So they'll grow opium, sell it, they'll use that to bribe the local Thai governors, they'll use that to fund their rebellion. So it's a very complicated uh, 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 relationship. Also, a lot of the rainforest in Burma is being destroyed. And even though it's illegal and Thailand doesn't support that, a lot of the logs somehow manage to make their way down Thai rivers and you know get out through Thailand. So it's a pretty ambivalent relationship. Isn't there fighting at the border, though? Yeah, a lot, frequent. Um, but the Thai army is much more powerful than the Burmese, so the Burmese don't really want to take it on. Yeah? What's the relationship in Bhutan to the Chinese occupation of Tibet? And how are they dealing with China being right there? 
Well, they um, they kind of for a long time they were isolated, and um, they were very much like Tibet in not wanting anything to do with the world community. And then they saw what happened there, and they're because they're landlocked and in between these high mountain passes, it would be very difficult for the uh, uh, Chinese to come in, and uh, it'd be it's just very well defended militarily. But they. Um, they saw what happened and said, well, we really have to open up to the rest of the world and be recognized. They're part of the UN. They have a mutual defense agreement with India, so they're Indian soldiers there. So the Chinese kind of know that if they attack Bhutan, they get into trouble with India. Interestingly, um, just as a side note, the Bhutanese national sports are darts and archery. So they're all very accurate shooting arrows, but they also have these darts, which are not like English pub darts. They're huge. They're about the size of our footballs, and these guys can throw them like, you know, um, I, I hesitate to say how far, 200 feet, and hit a post. So, you know, whoever takes on that country's got some something to deal with. And their national, you know, their, their pastime, they will, um, they'll get together and throw these darts. And when one of the men, I would see this in, in many villages, there'd be like eight to ten guys um, throwing darts. And when one of them would hit the post from 200 feet away, they'd form little groups of four. And they're all wearing these apron-like national dresses that look somewhat like women's dresses. Um, and they put up their arms and interlick their arms with each other and then do this lovely little very feminine dance around while singing to celebrate that one of them had hit it. And, you know, it, it really it was just <laughs> so delightful because it was so unmacho. It was very festive. I mean, one could even say gay in the old sense of the word. So. What do you think is the animism of the household gods and the... And the sort of the tit-for-tat, um, I do this and I get this. Or yeah. Is, is that an equivalent of what we would call superstition? You know, I, I hate to say it, but I've been told that I may not fully understand these things, that you can see them as sort of um, honoring an archetype. But my feeling was that for many of the, many of the uh, uh, rural people whom I met, they were quite simple, and it was sort of like, if I don't bring rice to this god who happens to be in a Buddhist temple, my harvest next year won't work. So it had that mechanical, superstitious feeling to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's also a, a group of uh, uh, Burmese who uh, take on the, the spirits of the knots and perform ceremonies, and who are mostly gay men. Yes. Yeah, that, that's true. I heard about that. I didn't see that. Did you see any of that? Were you there? I, I, was, uh, yeah, I was there one time. I once saw a ceremony, but I, I don't remember which. It was 1990. I don't remember which you know, spirit was involved because I couldn't understand anything. Right. Yeah, but they do go on. It's quite a big thing. Yeah. Thank you. Well, if there are no more questions, why don't we, why don't we close? And. What, what I'd like to do is dedicate whatever merit there was in, in the talk to, to world peace and to the people of, of, uh, of Burma and Bhutan and to our mutual understanding and, and that, we may all, that we may all live in, in happy and healthy and informed community with all the peoples of the world. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month, 
and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live. Please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.